I'm Zivy Owens, and you're listening to the award-winning podcast, Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Please sign up for my newsletter at zibbyowens.com for updates on podcast guests and lots of live events. Hi, everybody. Thanks so much for listening. Um, I hope that you have had a chance to check out We Found Time, wefoundtime.com, my new online magazine. We have such amazing essays out this week, and I really hope you'll take the time to go read them or send them to friends or see what you think. And I'd love your feedback if you have any thoughts. All the essays on We Found Time are written by authors who have been on this podcast already. So it's original content and I think it's really awesome. So I really hope you'll check it out. This week's sponsor is Nini's Treats, which is my in-laws crumb cake business. And it is so good. And they had gone on hiatus for a little while and they're back in business now, stronger than ever. And it's the best crumb cake in all different flavors. And you can order it on goldbelly.com. And their brand is called Nini's Treats. Nini is my husband Kyle's grandmother, N-E-N-E apostrophe S, Nini's Treats. And you just search it on Gold Belly and they have this amazing black and white crumb cake and a regular crumb cake. And anyway, it's really delicious. And for everybody who is at home and going stir crazy, um, it will ship really quickly and fresh and you can freeze it if you don't want to eat it right away. So anyway, ninistreats.com or go buy it on goldbelly.com. I'm here today with Nicole C. Keir, who is the author of the middle grade novel Foreverland, the memoir Now I See You, which was on many magazines' best of lists, the chapter series The Fix-It Friends, and The Startup Squad. Her essays have appeared in the Modern Love column of The New York Times, Good Housekeeping, Parents, Salon, HuffPost, and more. She teaches nonfiction writing at Columbia University and the NYU School of Professional Studies. A New York native, she received a BA from Yale University, an MA from Columbia, and a red nose from the San Francisco School of Circus Arts. She currently lives in Brooklyn with her husband and three children. Welcome, Nicole. Thanks so much for coming on Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Thank you for having me. We are joined today by my two little guys who are six and five, and we'll see how they do, but they read your book Foreverland with me, or I read it out loud to them, so I thought it'd be nice if they could hear us talk. Yay! (laughs) So welcome. Can you please tell listeners what Foreverland is about? Yes. Foreverland is about Margaret, who's a shy, anxious, eccentric 12-year-old who's having trouble at home, and she runs away to live in an amusement park called Foreverland. And when she gets there, she meets Jamie, who is also a runaway, though her polar opposite, and he and she forge a friendship and have an exciting adventure, which is also a transformative journey of self-discovery for both of them. Perfect fit. (laughs) Well done. So how did you come up with this plot? What made you want to write this book? Well, when my son, my son, I have three kids. My son's 15. My daughter's, oh, just turned 13 this week. Yeah. And then my little one is seven. And when my son was 12, he went through this period of being really nostalgic for his childhood, which was very funny to me because he was still a kid. (laughs) He was only 12. But he kept expressing this feeling of like, I don't want to get any older. I don't want to have responsibilities. I, I miss being a kid. And I actually... He actually helped me come up with the idea because he said, you should write a book about a kid that doesn't want to grow up. And 
I thought of Peter Pan, who's the proverbial boy who never grew up. And my son said, you should have it set in an amusement park because those are the most fun (laughs) places. And that sort of put the idea in motion. So was it supposed to be like a a play on Never Never Land? Yeah, it was. I did not pick Yes, yes. It's a very, very loose. I mean, it's it's inspired by Peter Pan, but the retelling is so loose and modern as to, it's the kind of thing that I think maybe readers will dawn on them towards the end, or maybe it won't, maybe just in the retelling, but it is definitely loose. But I did have the inspiration of, you know, your traditional coming of age story and what it means to, you know, grow up and put childish things behind you and how that can be really difficult. So Margaret runs away in part because her parents, well, mostly because her parents are separating. And you have this very sad image of the father's suitcase by the door and how she gets so upset she ends up kicking the suitcase. And it kind of brought back for me, I remember the day that my dad moved out and all of his bags were like going through the lobby and (laughs) out into cars. And it was so sad. And it brought that all back when I thought about that that suitcase that you mentioned like throughout the book. Anyway, it just like brought it all up for me. And I was thinking, okay, well, she was so mad that she just ran away. And I was 14, she's 12. Did you ever have a feeling like that where suddenly things were just spiraling out of your control, something bad that you didn't want to be happening was happening and you just wanted to like run away from it all? Oh, I've had that feeling (laughs) so many times. I mean, I think... I'm I'm having it right now. No, I'm kidding. (laughs) Yeah, sometimes it's on a daily basis. (laughs) I was going to say kids, you know, have so little control over things. I mean, they are so... It's easy for kids, I think, to feel powerless because things happen to them. And then, you know, they can react, but they have so little agency over what happens. And, you know, divorce, I think, is one of those things. But there are so many things that happen to us as kids. And also... But also... For adults, obviously. So, yeah, I think there have been plenty of things that have happened where I felt like, boy, there's nothing I can do to change this. And, yeah, I think the the fantasy of running away is cool because you have total control. Like, especially as a child, I think that's why so many coming-of-age classics start with running away because that's where an adventure will begin. It's a time when kids have total control. They don't have to go to school. They don't have to do their homework. They don't have to do chores. They don't have to, you know, listen to their parents. So it's exciting. What did you guys think of Foreverland? I really liked it. What do you like about it? Because it was very good and... There are a lot of good parts in it. Okay, so now you have to answer what was a good part in Foreverland. Like the part when Jamie said, you know, there's only, there's not only one star in the sky. Oh, you like that part? Oh, that's awesome. <laughs> I love that. That I added in sort of late. That was in late stages of revision that I added that in. Any other parts? Not really. I don't think so. Great. Do you remember anything you liked about Foreverland? No, I don't remember anything. Great. Perfect. Thank you for being a guest interviewer. (laughs) All right, well, one out of two isn't bad, right? (laughs) What would you want to happen if there was another, if there was a sequel? Can you think of anything? Um, Because I really wanted a sequel. I wanted to keep following Margaret and Jamie to see what would happen to them afterwards. Wouldn't you want that? mm -hmm. Yeah, maybe they could go to, like, not-so-foreverland. Every so often land. (laughs) 
occasionally, occasionally land, sporadic land. (laughs) You wrote in the book, you said, fun fact, places that aren't scary get scary in a hurry when you are alone in the dark. Which definitely relates with to you guys, right? Yeah. Is the dark still scary? And I would thought. I'm scared when I'm alone in my bed at night. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So are all of my children, which is why my seven-year-old particularly finds her way into my bed. Most nights. My husband's like, aren't they getting a little too big for this? (laughs) That's why you have a king-sized bed. (laughs) But joking aside, you've had this eye diagnosis and disease. I don't know the proper word. Eye condition? Both. Both, okay. (laughs) That you've been coping with for some time and that you wrote a whole memoir about and lots of amazing essays about how to cope with a degenerative eye disease which you sort of like what's going on in the book, which you ultimately don't have that much control over. Right. And I thought that this quote about things being scary in the dark might also relate to that. Yes. Well, like my digging? I love, <laughs> yes. Well, the great thing about vision loss and blindness is that everything's a metaphor. Right. <laughs> That's true. You really can't say anything without it being a metaphor, which really, as a writer, is very elegant and <laughs> works nicely. But yeah, I was diagnosed with the degenerative retinal disease, retinitis pigmentosa, when I was 19. So in the middle of college, and I did, I wrote a memoir called Now I See You, which is all about sort of coming to terms with that diagnosis over the course of many years and really primarily when I became a mom. And yeah, so things get scary in the dark. I'm sure that's (laughs) related in some sense. You know, nobody likes to think about encroaching darkness of any kind, especially the literal kind. And it is, yeah, it's definitely scary. But also, I genuinely, that happens to me at night. And I think to so many of us where, you know, you go through your day having somewhat of a grip on yourself and your anxieties. And then as soon as you lie down, all of the things... It's just like a flood of preoccupation (laughs) that seem, you know, overwhelming. So, and that definitely happens to my, all of my kids too. So I think there's something about nighttime that does that. It sort of unlocks your worst imaginings. And I thought that 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 happens to Margaret when she's having a sleepover in the haunted house Mm -hmm. and she's an anxious girl by nature. So I thought that would be a likely thing that would happen to someone in her position. I feel like things in the night, I have to literally say to myself, like, this will not feel like a big deal tomorrow. This yes. will not feel as big a deal, like as big a deal tomorrow. Hold on one second. Welcome back. Yay, <laughs> we, I'm we took back. a brief pause while I kicked my kids out of the room because that was really hard. <laughs> but I'm glad they, they got their two cents in there. We were talking about being a mom and going through your own issues and coping with all of that and things that I found very interesting, but didn't want to talk about it in front of them anyway. When you, well, let's back up for one second. When you found out you had the degenerative retinal disease, you decided to live your life in a totally different way. And you went off and you joined the circus school and did lots of different things. Tell me about that. And if this need to sort of appreciate every moment of life and do everything you can still lingers with you. Ah, yes. So I was 19 when I got my diagnosis and it was, it's a gradual but progressive disease. So basically the doctor explained first I would lose my nighttime vision, which had already begun. It was what sent me 
to the doctor in the first place because I couldn't see the stars at night. And then he said I'd lose my peripheral vision and then ultimately my central acuity. And they didn't know how long it would take, but there was no cure was the main takeaway, which is such an unusual thing to think about in this day and age in terms of, you know, no treatment at all, no cure, nothing. And it's different now. You know, it's been a few years. There still is no reliable treatment, but there's a lot more sort of promising avenues. Nonetheless, I was 19 years old in the doctor's office by myself, and he was telling me, you're going to go blind. There's literally nothing you can do (laughs) at all. Good luck. And so it was a very complicated summer. I really didn't know how to deal with that. I was, I had just finished my sophomore year at Yale and I really felt like the world was my oyster. I was sort of like poised to do anything I wanted to do. And then I I had never met a blind or visually impaired person before at all. So I didn't even understand what that meant practically, like, you know, could you have kids? I don't know. I'd never seen any besides Stevie Wonder, you know, and like that was the only <laughs> reference I had. And so the more I thought about it, the more sort of panic stricken I became because I had a total absence of information <laughs> or support. So I basically decided, you know what? This is a gradual disease. It's not going to happen for a while. I'm just going to sort of forget all about it. Because like 10 years from now, like who knows if I'll even be alive 10 years. Plus I'll be super old. I'll be 30. <laughs> like I remember what, those days. What quality of life do 30-year-olds have anyway? <laughs> so I sort of, that's where I began to sink into a kind of accidental denial. But the thing that really did stick with me was this idea of, well, my vision now has an expiration date. I'm not going to have vision forever, so I better use it while I can. If there's things I want to see, I better not, you know, hit the snooze button. I should absolutely see everything I want to see right now. And it did make me start to say yes instead of no to things that I might have, you know, perhaps exercised better judgment and declined the invitation. But I just thought it's really now or never. So, yes, this was the carpe diem (laughs) part of my life. And I'm really glad that I had that because it, I think I was so young when it happened, 19, that I feel it kind of maybe changed the kind of person that I would become. I was by nature very sensible, I think, and cautious. And because of my prognosis, I I really sort of had to override that and become more kind of grab life by the horns and, you know, climb every mountain. And I do think, I mean, you can't maintain that level of carpe diem. It's exhausting, (laughs) you know, but I do think it still stays with me. Absolutely. Not 24 hours a day, but I will have moments where I will think like, wow, this is so beautiful, this flower, or my, usually it's my kids. Like, look at this, like that I can see the hole that her tooth left when her tooth fell out. And it sounds really cheesy, but it does make me remember to linger a little bit and sort of take that in and, you know, take that photograph in my head uh-uh. <laughs> it's cheesy. It's not. It's a I good warned reminder. you. No, it's a good reminder for everybody to slow down and appreciate 
the empty spot in the in the bathroom to do it's so cute theory. it is it's I mean, such it's a cute, cute empty spot you know and then the big teeth came in they're so like unattractive and then you have like <laughs> orthodontia so anyway that moment is like amazing right did you just out of curiosity is there like a family history of this or was it completely random no there's no family history it's just a spontaneous mutation so yes random wow well sounds like you've been coping with it like incredibly well. I mean, you have a sense of humor, you do crazy things like, you know, become a clown and whatever else. And you work at a bar and, you know, I mean, it's like, you just, it's awesome. It's just inspiring and awesome. Yeah. I try to, I mean, the thing about vision loss, and I've been very lucky because it has been very slow and gradual, which has given me the time to sort of adapt. But I really try not to let it stop me, even when I feel, even when my reaction is, oh, this is going to be inconvenient, <laughs> or this is going to be difficult, or I really don't know how I'm going to do this. I try to, if it's something I really want to do, to just say, I'll figure it out. And that is what I did this sort of towards the end of my memoir is about me choosing to have my third child with her tooth hole, <laughs> with her adorable tooth hole. And it, that was a really hard decision because by then I had lost a lot of vision and I could see sort of the impact it was going to have on me and my parenting. It was very scary. But ultimately, and I was very lucky because my husband was sort of totally on board and really leaving it up to me and trusting me. And ultimately I thought, you know, I feel like I can do this right now and I don't know what the future holds, but neither does anybody if we're being honest. So I have to sort of trust that we'll figure it out. And that has been my sort of method. Sometimes it's a terrible method because sometimes I find myself in situations where I'm like, oh my God. <laughs> I do not know. I have not figured it out. And this is a mess. But usually, you know, usually I manage. And how are you writing throughout? So you've written so many books now. You have the yes. Fix It Friends series. You have the memoir. You have Foreverland. You have the Startup Squad. When are you doing all this? How are you doing all this? Is this what you do full time? Like, yes, I'm. I mainly write, and then I also teach writing at NYU School of Professional Studies, and I teach at the Columbia MFA program as an adjunct. So, I mean, the great thing about being visually impaired in 2020 is accessibility is so easy and prevalent, and I just have a Mac computer, which you know has the same settings that anybody's Mac computer has, and uh, you probably wouldn't even know it. It's just buried there, and I can magnify it as much as I want, and it's super easy and convenient. So, yeah, and I have a Kindle where I do my reading. I'm a big audiobook listener, like a <laughs> sort of junkie of audiobooks. So because of all this various technology, not only am I able to do all the writing and the reading, but I'm able to do it you know, really, you know, with just great facility and uh, efficiently. So, yeah, I'm glad to be living. Technology drives me crazy, especially as a parent. I'm not a big fan of it always. But the flip side of it is it, it enables me to do incredible things. So, yeah, so I guess I'll keep the technology. And do you ever dictate when you're writing? I don't. I mean, just because it's not how I've done it, you know, and writing is so much a force of habit. I imagine that I certainly could. 
You know, that's the thing about it. The one advantage that I, and I tell this to, you know, people who've read my memoir, especially younger people and kids who have similar diagnoses, I, I try to impart to them the upside of dealing with the degenerative disease, whatever it is, or any kind of personal challenge really, is that you begin to understand and believe in your own ability to adapt, which is so tremendous. And it's something that if you don't have to adapt all the time, like you don't, obviously, but if you're continually losing vision and so you have to change the way you're doing things continually, you start to believe no matter what happens, I'll be able to reconfigure things so that I'll adapt to the new way. So I don't dictate now, but if I needed to, I would just do it, I guess. Although from what I know about dictating to yeah, Siri, I, <laughs> I don't know what the books would end be up being. Very interesting book. <laughs> it would be like maybe more like James Joyce yeah. <laughs> than I am right now, maybe. <laughs> There would have to be like a different program. I mean, I'm sure there is, but you could not. Siri is like the worst. Yes. You know? Yeah, they have some better better programs than yeah. Siri, I think. So sitting here with you, you would not know you were visually impaired in any way. I mean, you don't yeah. give that away. You don't, does it ever impact the way somebody might perceive you? Yeah, it's funny. And that's why I was able to be in denial for so long. And that's sort of, I mean- it's been a bit of a challenge, actually, because a lot of my memoir is about passing, you know, passing for sighted. And it it's because I read as fully sighted to most people that I've been loath to sort of correct that because it just mainly because it feels awkward and weird. And then it involves a whole conversation. And then people, <laughs> when you tell people you, you're losing your vision, they get depressed and then you have to cheer them up. And, you know, so... <laughs> For most casual interactions, it's not worth it mm-hmm. to do the whole explanation. I look perfectly sighted and I get by well enough. But then, you know, there's all sorts of weird things that come up. Like the main thing is I I have no peripheral vision, so I'm continually bumping into people. And really in a way that must seem to them very perplexing because I look totally fine and then I don't see somebody right in front of me, you know, like dogs and kids especially because they fall below my frame of vision. So it does get me into situations where people are like really annoyed and angry at me because they don't understand. I don't have, I do have a white cane and I carry it with me. I use it at night more. And it probably, people have told me it would be really helpful to use during the day, mostly as a marker for other people so that they would know I'm visually impaired. So you don't want them to know. Well, that's the tricky thing is sort of like it's, you know, that's what my book really explores too, is it's the mobility cane is this huge kind of hurdle I had because it really was such a marker for me, you know, like this is blind when you use the cane. And I think I just had so much, you know, hangups about sort of accepting that because my disease was so slow, it wasn't something I had to accept. And because I can get by well enough in all sorts of situations, it's difficult to know when I need it and when it would be helpful, even as just an indication to other people. Like I didn't, I'm not actually... (laughs) like a self-obsessed narcissist that I bumped into, I literally just couldn't see you. So that's that's where it gets me into trouble sometimes or, you know, not being able to 
you know, my my central vision, I just had this surgery, this cataract surgery, me and a bunch of octogenarians. <laughs> but you, I did develop cataracts because of my eye condition. And that has helped tremendously with my acuity. But previous to that, I literally could not sign anything, you know, forms, permission slips, sign-up sheets. And so I'll go to my kid's school and sign something and it will be like, not in the right spot. And next thing you know, you've volunteered yourself as like head of the PTA. And you're like, wait, I didn't mean to I sign did. that one. I, I have gotten into so many like kerfuffles like that, <laughs> registering my daughter at the pediatrician. And I said I was her adoptive mother oh, by no. accident and just like all sorts of false information. And then people don't easily or readily understand, like, why would you make such a mistake? So it's tough, actually. It's complicated yeah. reading as perfectly sighted when you have like pretty significant vision loss because it's hard for people to understand. Wow. And then you have just like regular parenting issues on top of everything. I mean, those are mainly the kind that I have. <laughs> the only, the, the vision loss parenting issue, the only one I'm dealing with now is my daughter thinking she can wear makeup because mm. she's not allowed <laughs> to wear makeup. And so she'll just see how much can, you know, fly under. She doesn't really, because she doesn't see through my eyes. She doesn't really know what I'm able to see or not. But it always makes me laugh because I'm always catching her. And she's like, how did you see so I like to like cultivate this air of mystique around myself as having like a sixth sense. Love it. Yeah. <laughs> so what are you working on now? Are you doing another book? Are you? Yeah, I'm just a few months into starting work on another middle grade book, which I'm very excited about. I really like writing middle grade. I mean, I've written for adults, I've written for, you know, elementary school kids, and now Foreverland is middle grade. So I enjoy it all. But middle grade particularly is a place that I really like to write because it is, you know, being 12 years old, you know, the onset of puberty and coming of age, moving from childhood to adolescence, it is such a rich time emotionally, developmentally. And I just feel like it also has such a long tradition of great books. And my favorite books by Judy Bloom and the classics too, you know, Peter Pan and The Wizard of Oz, all of those books I really loved as a child, they tended to be middle grade books. And plus I have, you know, I have a daughter who's that age now. And I think it's a remarkable period of transformation, sometimes exhausting for parents, but good for literature. I feel like by the time things get published, because it's I know. so slow, she'll be like in college. <laughs> yes. You should really start writing college books. That's you know? right. That's right. Well, my youngest will probably be reading middle grade by then. Do you have any advice for aspiring authors? For aspiring authors, my main advice would be to just write, write, write. I mean, I guess that's maybe pretty simple advice, but just writing every day. Sometimes it just feels like there's never enough time to do the writing that I want to do. Writing a book takes so long <laughs> and doing other things and working on multiple books at one time, it can feel very frustrating, but I try to just force myself to write a few pages every day. And then the remarkable thing is that after a few months, you know, you're like, oh my God, 
Look at how many pages I have. I have 150 pages. Like I have a book and it's incredible because it feels like you never had any time. And that if you keep pushing it forward little by little, you know, voila, you have a whole book. Love it. (laughs) Well, thank you so much for coming on the show and for dealing with my kids and for sharing (laughs) all of your personal experience with vision loss and being so open and Thank you. Yes, thank you so much for having me. My pleasure. (laughs) You've been listening to Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books with Zibby Owens. Please make sure to sign up for my newsletter at zibbyowens.com to get more updates about episodes like these and also lots of live events. Thanks so much for listening today. Again, please go check out wefoundtime.com, wefoundtime.com for this week's new five essays from authors who have been in the podcast. And also go to goldbelly.com and order some Nini's Treats Crumb Cakes. They are so good and you will not regret it, although your clothes might be a little tight next week. Um, I hope you all have a great week. Bye-bye. Thanks. You can follow me on Instagram at moms don't have time to read books. Thanks so much to Steve and Ryan at Texture Sound for the sound editing. And thank you to Morning Moon Productions for providing this fantastic intro and outro music. Thanks for listening. You could always email me at zibby at zibbyowens.com. 